It's noon on the first Monday of the month, so it's Book Choice on Fine Music Radio right here at the Artscape Theatre in Cape Town. I'm Gori Bose-Taylor. And I'm Matabataba. Good afternoon to you, Gori. Well, yes, but we have no books today, do we? It's <laughs> just you dancing to the music. <laughs> no, we definitely have books. Uh, what do you have for us? April Fool's Day. <laughs> April Fool's Day. I forgot Day. about that. And here we go. Philip Todris takes you into the glorious views of an old family estate, Constantia Glen, with owner Alexander Waver, as they leaf through Constantia Glen, a timeless vision by Claire O'Donoghue, with Craig, Craig Fraser's stunning photographs. And it's one of today's giveaways. Cruel as ever, Michael Roach Kelly hopes to keep us awake at night with three gripping thrillers, one of which... The Senior Advisor by Edmund George King is also one of today's giveaways. Sydney Moritz takes you to a hard-to-find little village in Korea in Corin Cronje's memoir of her teaching time there. It's called There Goes English Teacher. Vanessa Levenstein munches her way through Have You Eaten Grandma by Giles Brandreth often hilarious take on commas, apostrophes and other of today's grammar gloops. Go game viewing with zoologist John Hanks via Stuart Field's Guide to National Parks and Game Reserves of East Africa. Remembering to pack into your pocket Jonathan Neeming's Scorpions of Southern Africa. Beverly Rosemuller pronounces Washington Black by Esau mm-hmm, can't read that name Edu, mm-hmm, you'll get it right when Beverly comes on by Washington Black uh, his powerful, pacey and remarkable novel Leslie Beak almost dances to The Rhythm of Rain by Graham Baker Smith but changes her tune with Barack Obama's love letter to his daughters of the I Sing if we've time, if Matabataba makes time, we'll get Peter Soule's persuasive praise for, oh sorry, I got, got the wrong name there, Herman Chilemi's The Rise and Demise of the Afrikaners. He praises it for his fine writing and meticulous research. And do stay tuned for our easy peasy competition question to win either Constantia Glenn, a timeless version by Alexander Waver, or The Senior Advisor by Edmund George King. And here's our pre-record with Philip Todris talking to Alexander Waver about glorious Constantia Glenn. Constantia Glenn, written by Claire Donoghue, with beautiful photographs by Craig Fraser, is published by Quivertree Publications. And the man who is behind it, I think, very much, is the man who is, I think, second generation, Alexander Bible, is that the correct... Bible is fine, and it's the third generation. Third generation already. <laughs> and what I loved about one of the things in the book that it said, it's a wild and romantic mountainside forest which has been tamed and transformed into a wine estate. And that's mm-hmm. what you spoke about very much mm-hmm. at the launch of the book. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about the history and how your family got involved 
and sure. how this has developed in this wonderful state. Mm, yes, absolutely. Uh, my grandfather actually came here for some business in the 19, early 1950s, started a company, and then in 1960 bought uh, what was then a mixed farm called Glen Alpine. Mixed farming, they did some grapes, they had some orchards, and they also farmed some cattle. And as I say, he bought it in 1960, but he didn't do very much with it. So over time, it actually the pine trees overgrew everything. And because of their acidity, they killed all the vegetation on the farm. And 20 years later, we were stuck in the sense uh, with the forest. And uh, the forest went all the way up to the houses. And uh, it was only in the mid-1990s when actually my father and mother built uh, what we call the manor house, which is on the envelope or on the front page of the book, that we decided to revitalize it back to its origin, which is a wine farm. I mean, obviously, Consentia being the oldest wine I area. Believe, I believe it was 1990s that they had that fire, and that was the, the yeah, phoenix yes. rising, as it were. <laughs> it was a kind of a <laughs> catalytic event, and we had already started clearing some of the forest, but a lot of the work was done by the fire eventually, so... That, uh, so it was a new start, but this new start really only happened around about the year 2000, am I right? Yes, I mean, we obviously after we cleared the forest, after we did some deep ripping, we started planting the first vineyards in 2000, 100%, right? 2000, the first 2001, 2003. First vintage from our own cellar, I have to add, including our red wines, was in 2007 when we built the wine cellar, the winery. So it's quite amazing that we're only talking about 12 years, and you go along to the tasting room and you feel like it must have been there forever. Yes, yes, yes. We tried to transform what used to be our private party room and uh, very thoughtfully into what is today our tasting room in order to keep its original setting um, in the midst of the vineyards and not to uh, make it too much of a to keep the private family feeling to it really and I think we have done a quite a good job in doing that and also the, the fantastic vista that you get up from the tasting yes, room which is yes. not only a tasting room but a very fabulous restaurant yes, as well yes, and I yes, mentioned yes, all of yes, that yes. we are very lucky because uh, the tasting room originally used to be the farm buildings and at the time the farm buildings were put up in the middle of the farm unlike most of the Concentra Manor houses if you look at them they were actually built in a ditch or in a protected area because of the wind so normally when you look at the Concentra manor houses they have beautiful architectural assembles but uh, they very often lack the views so we are very lucky in having our converted stables there but also I think what impressed me very much as well is the story you tell about why you did the book it's not only a glamorous book but has a reason yes 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 absolutely we felt very much that we wanted to share what we have uh, done on this farm over the last one and a half decades with as many people as possible and obviously a book that is I would say a picture book it's mainly based on visual pictures shows very well how this transformation has changed uh, what we started uh, 15 years ago. So it was about sharing and it was, as I said at the launch, it was also about celebrating the people who, who have all contributed to uh, this amazing transformation and as I say it's not one person, it's not one family it's a lot of people together that achieved, uh, that made it possible to achieve what we have achieved and uh, today we're very proud to say that uh, as I say our tasting room is one of the most visited places in uh, wine places uh, in the country and uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, wonderful it's a wonderful story but uh, what I think about is you share it in a very generous way and I think the photographs show that in enormously. It's a, a wonderful array of photographs, giving you the setting, giving you the context, and I think having read or gone through those books, 
Mm-hmm. There's no ways you wouldn't want to go and visit Constantia <laughs> Glen. So congratulations to all of those involved in Thank creating you. this beautiful book and creating the estate which it is today. We've been speaking to Alexander Bible, who is the current owner of Constantia Glen. The book, as I've mentioned, is Constantia Glen, written by Claire Donahue, with beautiful photographs by Craig Fraser and published by Quivertry. And that gorgeous book is one of today's giveaways. Question coming up soon. Michael Roach Kelly, do your best to keep us awake all night. Good afternoon to fine music radio listeners, wherever you are. I have three totally different reads for this month. My first is Scrublands by Chris Hammer. Many of you will remember the Australian book, The Dry, which I recommended, and I now offer you Scrublands. In a country town, ravaged by drought, A young priest opens fire on his congregation, killing five men before being shot himself. One year later, Martin Scarzen arrives in Riversend to write a feature on the tragedy. Now the stories he hears from the locals do not fit with the accepted version of the events. Just as Martin believes he's making headway, The bodies of two backpackers are found in the scrublands. The media, of course, descend on River's End, and Martin finds himself in the spotlight. Martin is now risking everything to uncover a truth that becomes more complex with every twist. There are very powerful forces determined to stop him, and he has no idea how far they will go to bury their secrets. This was an exciting read. The second choice, A Fatal Obsession by Faith Martin, in Oxford in 1960, is a murderer on the loose and two unlikely heroes are poised to solve the case. Meet probationary WPC Trudy Loveday. She is smart, enthusiastic and always underestimated. In the hope of getting her out of the way, Trudy's senior officer assigns her to help coroner Clement Ryder as he reopens the case of a young woman's death. Trudy is delighted to be working on a real murder case at last. Meanwhile, the rest of the police force are busy investigating a series of threats and murders, but Clement feels that it's all linked somehow. Trudy and Clement form an unlikely partnership, but will they solve the puzzle before the murderer strikes again? I felt strongly there were shades of Agatha Christie in this gripping read. My last read is The Senior Advisor by E.J. King. Many believe the international consultancy does not exist. Even the head of Her Majesty's Secret Service seems to dismiss the rumours of a shadowy yet powerful mercenary spy network as folk tales. Captain John Fletcher, a Royal Navy stalwart, whom MI6 has just dispatched on a luxury yacht searching for lost pirate ships to protect its high-profile passengers from potential terrorist threat. But he's having doubts. For why would mysterious strangers warn its passengers of impending dangers. 
or why would he get the impression that the expedition is being discreetly shadowed? And why would his presence on board the Nerid appear to elicit so much hostility from some fellow passengers? As the yacht sails from the turquoise waters of the Caribbean Sea to the dangerous islands of war-torn Mozambique, and Captain Fletcher struggles to tell friend from foe among his companions, his conviction becomes stronger by the day. The international consultancy exists, as does its mysterious senior adviser, and if he does not stop them, events could unfold that might threaten the very heart of the Western world's political and military stability. Well, and those are the books for this month. Please remember, books are meant to be read, and when you're finished, pass it on to family member or friend, and keep the reading going. My choices this month were Scrublands by Chris Hammer, Fatal Obsession by Faith Martin, and The Senior Advisor by E.J. King. Enjoy your reading.
Old Devil Moon, sung by our very own lovely, beautiful Louise Howlett, uh, Albert Comprick on piano there. So I hope you guys are listening. And please yeah, give ama- us amazing voice. Yeah. And just before Louise, mm-hmm. you heard um, Michael Roach Kelly reviewing the senior advisor, and it's another of today's great giveaways. And here is the easy peasy competition question Twin either Constantia Glenn or the senior advisor. Tell us who wrote in his prologue to the Canterbury Tales when in April the sweet showers fall that pierce marshes, marches drought to the roots and all. Was it Wilbur Smith? Was it Chaucer? We're waiting for your clever answers on 021-401-1013. Sidney Moritz. The nicely ungrammatical title of Karen Cronje's There Goes English Teacher. It has to have crossed the minds of many listeners to pack up and leave for a remote land where our slates are clean and opportunities abound. Yet it's not many who actually make it happen. So when, on a considered whim, award-winning writer Karen Cronje leaves South Africa to teach English in a small and hard-to-find Korean village... She made that fantasy a stark reality. A fairy tale? It wasn't. And in this warts and all memoir, we are brought along on a colourful journey that proved to be not only a physical one, but also an emotional and even edifying experience. Corin was in her late 40s when she weighed up the pros and cons of going to Korea to teach English, despite Afrikaans being her home language and not being an actual teacher. The temptation of being able to cover the costs of her son Marco's university tuition and escape the disappointments of her stalling career were too great. Plus, she could see herself finishing her book over there. Through contacts, she secures a job at a Hagwon, a private school that Korean children attend after government school for many hours late into the night. When she finally arrives in the small town, culture shock hits almost immediately and she takes the reader along on a ride peppered with miscommunications, misunderstandings and then connections as she navigates life in a foreign language, culture and community. This is no travel guide on Korea. It's a memoir set partly in Korea partly in South Africa and mainly in the mind and thought processes of the writer. It maps the author's pursuit of truth, which includes, among other things, her search for the nature of identity and the loss of it, sexuality as one reaches a certain age, and displacement and belonging at the same time. Culture shock is as demanding as reverse culture shock, which she is warned she will encounter when she returns home, and indeed, life remains complicated when she does. Corin invites the reader into her head as her sometimes stream-of-consciousness writing exposes every right and wrong turn, judgment and perception as it happened and without varnish. We are exposed to her unedited and sometimes confusing thought process around the characters and direction of her book, which consumes much of her headspace while on foreign soil. While these parts may require a tad more concentration, if not a reread at times, it does give good insight into the mind of a creative writer, which is priceless. Indeed, when Corin states she will write herself back into existence, 
one feels she already has. She deliberately or inadvertently sums up her memoir in a letter that she writes to friends back home. To my dear friends, it's just dawned on me that I'm now going to swamp you with pages and pages of myself, and it's possible that these pages are more for me than for you. But I'm nevertheless going to send this letter the way I wrote it because these pages rescue me from the quagmire of myself and help me understand the strange new me in this new country. And they most definitely help me feel connected to you and to the healthy life. And it's just possible that you will find them interesting. I'd like to confirm that it's more than possible, probable even, that the reader will too. And Vanessa Levenstein, an appetising title, Have You Eaten Grandma? by Giles Bradreth. If, like me, you have two copies, one at home, one at work, of both The Elements of Style by Strunk and White and Eat Shoots and Leaves by Lynn Truss, then it's almost a certainty you'll want to read this book, Have You Eaten Grandma? subtitled or The Life-Saving Importance of Correct Punctuation, Grammar and Good English by Giles Brandreth. First things first, both Lynn Truss and the late E.B. White, who, incidentally, is also the author of Charlotte's Web, are authors I would love to have invited to tea and discussed commas over cake. Giles Brandreth is pompous, and as if to counteract the grandiosity and royal name-dropping, he scatters his texts with expletives. So maybe you don't want to have him over for tea, but you do want to read his book because he is funny, clever, and he knows his stuff. He really does explain just where, how, and what to do with that elusive comma or apostrophe in a way that is so easy to understand. His examples are excellent, and he gets under the skin of his subject matter. Brandreth's an English writer, broadcaster, actor and former Conservative Member of Parliament and clearly relishes language. He makes a point of capturing the zeitgeist and happily mentions Courtney Kardashian and in nearly the next breath Bertrand Russell. While he has embraced social media, he's equally critical about it. He writes about a survey that found that three quarters of adults now use emojis to communicate with one another. If a small digital image, designed by someone else and generated for you, can express how you feel, who needs words? Another useful section is on the different words and spelling of British and American English, and if you toss and turn at night over when to use whom or who, be consoled, because after a very clever explanation, Brandworth concludes that the days of the word whom are numbered. The book is well laid out and Brandreth paints pictures of concepts in order to make them visually intelligible. A little quibble, although there's an extensive index, there isn't a contents page. Giles explains, punctuation is essential to clear communication, and the book's title, Have You Eaten Grandma?, perfectly illustrates just what happens when you omit a comma. So if you're in danger of cannibalism, or equally offensive, omitting the apostrophe S, don't delay. Get your copy of Have You Eaten Grandma? by Giles Brandreth. Somewhere beyond the sea Somewhere waiting for me My lover stands on golden sands 
and watches the ships that go sailing somewhere beyond the sea. She's there watching for me. If I could fly like birds on high, then straight to her arms I'll go sailing. It's far beyond the stars. It's near beyond the moon. I know beyond the sung by Leslie Klingsmith and Cory can you please remind us of our easy competition easy, question easy competition question okay so to win either Constantia Glenn or the senior advisor tell us who wrote in his prologue to the Canterbury Tales when in April sweet showers fall that pierces mas- March's drought to the root and all was it Wilbur Smith was it Chaucer Waiting for your answers on 021-401-1013. John Hanks takes us to the lesser-known national parks and game reserves in East Africa with a great guide 
to the Scorpions. You might well be lucky enough to meet there. I have two reviews for this program, and the first is Stuart's Field Guide to the National Parks and Game Reserves of East Africa. Now, this, I think, is an essential purchase, not only for anyone who's still considering whether or not to make a long overdue trip to some of the celebrated protected areas of East Africa, but also for those who've already been to some of them and want to return for more. The authors, Chris and Matilda Stewart, have built up a deserved reputation for the quality of their field guides and species checklists published in peer-reviewed journals, and I know that everything they produce is based on first-hand field experience. In this production, they focused on Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda and Rwanda, and I was delighted to see they've embraced no less than 58 protected areas spread across the four countries, calling attention to the enormous attractions of the lesser-known areas. These include the national parks of Katave, Mount Elgon and Akageri, where visitor numbers are low, compared to the widely known and often very busy destinations such as Serengeti, Maasai Mara and Amboseli, which are inevitably high priorities on the bucket list those still to visit East Africa. The Stuarts have succeeded in tempting you to all 58, with concise information on each locality, including text and photographs of the main attractions of both plant and animal life, with maps and facilities available, and important alerts on malaria and state of the roads for the more intrepid visitors who will drive themselves. They were also courageous in calling attention to one of the most serious environmental concerns in East Africa, namely accelerating woodland and forest destruction for charcoal production, often called a slow-burning environmental disaster for many African countries. This, of course, should not deter anyone from making the safari to the region, but it will hopefully stimulate them to consider supporting the NGOs and individuals working hard to secure a sustainable future for the forest and woodlands so that our children can continue to enjoy East Africa's extraordinary celebration of biodiversity. Well done, Chris and Matilda, a fine production. The title again is Stuart's Field Guide to the National Parks and Game Reserves of East Africa, written by Chris and Matilda Stewart, published in 2018, and it's published by Strake Nature Penguin Random House. It sells for 320 rand. The second book is the new edition of Jonathan Leeming's Scorpions of Southern Africa. It's just been published, and I would urge anyone who wants to know more about these often persecuted and much misunderstood creatures to buy a copy for an excellent introduction to what is a fascinating group of animals. I can imagine the reaction of what is unfortunately a large number of people who suffer from arachnophobia, an abnormal fear of spiders and scorpions, who regard both as pernicious animals which must be killed on sight. Yes, of course, there are dangerous species in both groups, and there are indeed some highly venomous scorpions, but of the 2,352 species that occur throughout the world, only 25 of these are known to have caused human fatalities, with just three of these in southern Africa. All scorpions produce venom from the sting in their tail. Leeming has produced a most useful and clearly illustrated venomosity rule of thumb. A scorpion with a big 
thick tail and thin pincers must be avoided as these are highly venomous but those with very thin tails but in contrast thick pincers are so weakly venomous as to cause no more than an itch scorpions of southern africa will undoubtedly make a most valuable contribution to appreciating and understanding the intriguing natural history anatomy and behavior of scorpions solitary creatures that have extraordinary adaptations for survival particularly in harsh environments with 98 species in south africa and 68 in namibia i hope this book will stimulate the most fervent of the arachnophobians to stop bludgeoning the poor creatures to death as with spiders simply capture them and release them elsewhere they all deserve your respect and commitment to their conservation as much do elephants and rhinos the title again scorpions of southern africa new edition written by jonathan leeming published in 2019 straight nature penguin random house of the publishers and it sells for 230 rand and beverly rosemoller a powerful pacey and remarkable novel there when a black slave is born on a particularly vicious barbados plantation in 1818 it seemed obvious that his life would be short brutal and obscure Yet this was not the fate of George Washington Black. He would, by a series of life-altering incidents, travel the world and discover his own fine talents as a youth and young man, while discovering too that some answers to life's questions are unfathomable. This remarkably pacey novel, written with resonant language and insight, is the third book by the black canadian author essie edigan whose former half blood blues was a finalist for the man booker prize as was this novel last year she is a young talent who has already achieved greatness the beautiful cream and gold cover shows what appears to be a fantastic object a type of hot air balloon its creator the plantation's owner owner's brother titch insists on naming it a cloud cutter under which is strung a fantastic watercraft complete with oars it is the element of the possible as well as the improbable that gives us tale its edge and presents us with a story that is subtle unlikely but utterly captivating wash has until the age of 11 seen only brutality on the face plantation which uses slaves as one would drive an old piece of machinery the chilling methods of enforcing discipline are difficult to read this is a release any infraction could meet with torture horrible there were no laws to stop the owners from doing exactly as they pleased to the souls who arrived in chains and who was assumed to be subhuman the boy's face has been badly burnt and he will carry this disfigurement as well as his slave tattoo for his lifetime When Erasmus Wilde inherits the estate from his uncle, a shudder goes through the roomy, bold body of Big Kit, Wash's protector, for in his pale face and empty eyes, she foresees a cruel future for a man who must feed on blood to warm himself. His younger brother Titch Hyde is a different person completely. He is an inventor, explorer, and abolitionist, and he enlists young Wash to help him create a device in which he can fly. 
Their escape from the state plantation is necessitated by the death of a very old cousin who blows his brains out on the estate while Wash is present. And they both know that Wash will be blamed and killed despite his innocence. After their daring flight off the island, the book takes us to the frigid Arctic, where Titch's elderly father is conducting his scientific experiments, and where Titch disappears into the icy wastes. Wash must make his way alone now in the world, a lonely and potentially dangerous place, for many would beat him for his shocking scars or recapture him as an escaped slave. But Wash has a great gift of drawing and observation. He is self-taught and talented and joins up with a famed marine scientist and his young daughter, Tana, in collecting and recording such specimens. He designs the first aquatic tank for Britain to contain foreign marine exhibits. Yet he cannot let go of his seeming abandonment by Titch, and his journey continues to Amsterdam and finally to Morocco, accompanied by Tana, to see if he can find the answers he has been searching for. This is a powerfully written novel which moves at a smacking pace. There is never a dull moment, and yet Edigan's prose is peerless. It is no less a masterpiece, a must-read. Seldom have I found a book, a shortlisted novel, so enthralling. And the book is Washington Black by Essie Edigan, published by Serpent's Tale.
Shell, played by Mike Lutz. What a lovely piece. It actually reminds me of uh, the Jazz Lounge, actually. Oh, that's good to hear. <laughs> so it looks like we might have time, actually, for two more. Good. So we can, we can do the Peter Soul one. That's great. But first, first of all, here's Leslie Beek with two wonderful books for younger readers. Something that I used to dread as a teacher was the water cycle. It seemed to be featured in every primary school science syllabus gaining a little information each year. I wish I had been able to access The Rhythm of the Rain by Graham Becker Smith in those dim and distant days. This is the kind of show-and-tell book that children just love. It's a mistake to think that they don't really look at pictures. It starts with rain, just like Standard 2 Science Book did, but proceeds far more joyfully as Isaac and his pet lamb race the streams down the mountainside past his home at the water mill and on to the big river. Somewhere in there is my little jar of water, Isaac thinks, of the jar with the fish that he returned to the stream when the storm began. In his little boat, Isaac follows the water downstream until the river reaches the sea, standard two, and evaporates, standard three, in sunshine to fall on parched lands in Africa, standard four. More evaporation, a whirl around the sea, until the rain falls again on little Isaac and his pet lamb. I loved this beautiful book. I could frame every illustration and gaze at it for hours, and it really teaches the essence of the water cycle, too. We've heard of him before a bit, but this new children's author deserves to be noticed. I've often said that the best books are, when you get down to it, about love. There seems to be a new trend towards books that aren't. A kind of hopelessness pervades some genres of books, especially books for teenagers. But of thee I sing by, well, I have to tell you sometime, Barack Obama does indeed sing. It sings of love both for his country and for his two daughters. Have I told you lately how wonderful you are? How the sound of your feet running from afar brings dancing rhythms to my day? How you laugh and sunshine spills into the room. Have I told you that you are creative, smart, brave, a healer, that you have your own song, that you are strong? And then on the last page, and have I told you that I love you? For each of the tellings, there is an example of an exceptional American. People of the caliber of Albert Einstein, Helen Keller, Martin Luther King, Sports heroes, musicians, artists, astronauts, and activists. Beautiful portraits of each hero by illustrator Lauren Long grace the right-hand page, while Obama's daughters and a growing crowd of friends enlighten the left-hand page. It is a lovely book. I think that we can guess with some certainty that there will have been some criticism of this book, but it is a love story to tell children in a beloved country, and to two of them in particular. The Rhythm of the Rain by Graham Baker Smith was published by Templar Publishing in 2018. Of The I Sing by Barack Obama with illustrations by Lauren Long was first published in America in 2010 and is now published by Puffin in 2018. It is distributed by Penguin Random House in South Africa. And here's the pre-record by Peter Soule that we didn't know whether we'd have time for and we do, so that's great. And it's where Peter persuasively praises Herman Chilliamy's The Rise and Demise of the Afrikaners for its fine writing and meticulous research. 
Publisher of 20 books of an historical nature, local historian Herman Gilliume has released his latest contribution to the Library of Africana. It is The Rise and Demise of the Afrikaners and is published by Tafelberg. Gilliume is an internationally renowned historian with his best-selling The Afrikaners being adapted into a documentary and being published to acclaim in Britain and the United States. As has been noted, Gilliume explains in great detail the spectacular rise and probable demise of the numerical minority that dominated 20th century South Africa. The Afrikaners are unique in the world in that they successfully mobilized ethnic entrepreneurship without state assistance, controlled an entire country, and then yielded power without military defeat. There was a story during the rounds prior to 1994 that at a meeting with the chief of the Defence Force, General George Mayring, Nelson Mandela told him the Defence Force was better equipped and would do well in a conflict, but the ANC had more men and would win in the end. But in the process, many would die. It was better to negotiate. Kilimi takes a hard analytic look at the Afrikaners' dramatic ascent and possible disappearance as a nation in a series of well-argued thematic chapters. The chapters have been well-researched and contain much information. Topics range from ethnic entrepreneurship, political parties' use of the coloured vote, Bantu education and the Rubicon speech to Mandela's relationship with the last Afrikaner leadership. He concludes by examining the most likely future for this contentious group and the nature of its imprint on South Africa. He charts the remarkable phenomenon of the rise of Afrikaans as a public language in the short space of 75 years of the 20th century. He writes that Lawrence Schlemmer concluded in 1994 that Afrikaans, though spoken as a first language by only 6 million people, forming 15% of the population, was the strongest language in South Africa in the way in which it was used formally and informally. He also noted its sudden decline was as a result of no longer being a language of instruction at universities and schools and as a language of record in the courts since 1994. He records the rise of the use of Afrikaans in the various disciplines such as history, the arts and humanities. It extended to the natural sciences and medicine, becoming in 1980 the 32nd most frequently used language, ahead of Hindi, Armenian and Arabic. Despite coming under threat during the 1990s, Afrikaans remained the dominant literary language, judged solely by the number of locally produced books. He lists a number of Afrikaans authors and poets and notes of the approximately 5,000 books published, some 60% were in Afrikaans, with English a distant 33%, the remaining 7% in other African languages. He concludes present-day Afrikaans speakers are responsible for transferring Afrikaans as a fully developed language to the next generation. He claims they have a special responsibility to the less affluent Afrikaans speakers, of whom most live in the rural Western Cape, but the manner in which Stellenbosch University changed its language of instruction does not fill him with confidence that leadership and courage 
are two of the visible elements strongly noticeable in the Afrikaans University community. Khinami has an easy writing style, and the research has been meticulous, making this a fascinating read. I strongly recommend The Rise and Demise of the Afrikaners, particularly if you are interested in our recent political history. Darling, it's Noches, no más liba en tu Dicen que no comía, no más liba en tu tomar. Curan que mismos cielos se estremecen y su llanto. Como sufrió Grey y Santo Muerte la apoyo mando.
Este muy de manía le va a cantar A la casita sola con tus patitas de par en par Curan que zapalo no es otra cosa más de su alma Que todavía la espera a que regrese la desdichada got that right as Virginia Lee and then before that we had the darling it's wonderful also by Virginia Lee and that's it for today and coming up you have the treat of the marvelous Mark Jennings with matinee thank you for your calls we've decided we're going to give away three books I don't know what the publisher's going to say wait is this uh, April Fool or are you being real now yeah April Fool no. <laughs> Give away your You call me there. <laughs> I thought you put the bike off. Let me see if I've got the... Lynn Massace. Lynn Massaces. Yeah. Looks like Massaces. One of our winners, as I say, they're going to be three. Other one is... <laughs> April Fool's Day. The other one is Jeffrey. Davies and the third is Lucia Duplessy will ring you round about this evening when I get home and it's FMR Book Choice at this same time same place next month it's going to be podcast this particular one on www.fmr.co.za thank you to Rick Everett Mabandi Lobi and Matapataba Radebi and from me Cory Bowes Taylor, it's goodbye and good reading. FM.